Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in thy well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, good morning. I uh, apologize for having missed last week, but I understand Brian did an outstanding job talking about fellowship last week. So um, perhaps you got a little break, um, but we're back at it today. And God willing, God willing, um, we will finish 2 Timothy in our study of this particular epistle this morning. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open them up to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 6, but we're going to go ahead and read through the end of not just this chapter, but the end of this great epistle. Four chapters, and we've been studying it for how long? I don't know, some time. So, just, th- just thank God I didn't start the epistle to the Romans. Um, I guarantee the Lord would come back before we finished it, probably. So Paul writes here in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychius I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At first, my defense, at at my defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Putins and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. We said that um, the second letter to Timothy is not only the last of Paul's epistles, they are the very last words that we know ever came from the pen of the hand of the Apostle Paul. Um, Very touching words. Uh, When I began this study, I said that there was a, a bishop in the Church of England, great Bishop of Durham, who used to say that he could not read through a single line of this letter without something like a mist gathering in his eyes, uh, because it's really a a very touching letter. 
As we come to the close of it, however, I just want to do a brief review of where we left off um, two weeks ago. Uh, Paul is acknowledging the fact that time is running out for him. He knows that at any moment um, the guards could come, that they're probably going to take him, bound hand and foot. They'll lead him out along the Ostian Way, which was one of the main thoroughfares leading into Rome, and there he was going to be executed. He would be beheaded. He would not be crucified like Peter and some others because he was a Roman citizen. And even if you were, committed a, even if you were guilty of having committed a heinous crime as a Roman citizen, uh, you could not be crucified. That was considered beyond the pale. So Paul ultimately would be beheaded, but he would be beheaded as an example to all those who dared to proclaim another king than Caesar. And of course, that was the earliest Christian proclamation. Jesus is Lord, which doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but in those days to say Jesus was Lord meant that Caesar was not, and that was a very serious matter. And so Paul knew that at any moment that was going to happen to him, and he acknowledges that. He said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure has come. Now, it may be a month down the road, it may be a few months down the road, but it could be any moment. He says, the time for my departure has come. And as he says that, he begins to take stock of his life. He begins to evaluate his life and his accomplishments and the things that he has done. And he says a number of things here that are significant, and we looked at them two weeks ago. We're just going to go through them very quickly. First thing he says is, I have fought the good fight. Paul oftentimes uses military metaphors, probably because he grew up, of course, in a Roman world, surrounded by Roman soldiers. Uh, they were everywhere. And so he oftentimes uses military metaphors, and he oftentimes uses athletic metaphors. And we're going to see that he does both of those here. First thing he says is, I have fought the good fight. We pointed out two weeks ago that what that means for us is that we're in a fight. Paul acknowledges that. The Christian life is a struggle. Now, you may want to go through the Christian life with ease and comfort, with a, with a lack of difficulty, but Paul is very clear that is not the way it is. Elsewhere, he says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against spiritual forces of wickedness in the high places. And that's why he says we have to put on the full armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. We have to take up the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit. Paul, he says, we are in a battle. Jesus himself acknowledged that on more than one occasion. It was not all salt and light. Jesus said, if you want to be one of my followers, you have to what? Take up your cross and follow me, which in the first century was an invitation. Everybody knew what the cross represented. It was an invitation to come and die. Elsewhere, the Lord says, in this world, you will have tribulation. He doesn't say, you may have tribulation. It's likely you're going to have tribulation. He says, you will have tribulation. He said, I came into the world not to bring peace, but to bring a what? A sword to divide households, because we said that is what the truth is. Does. So Paul acknowledges that we are in a battle. But what is interesting here is he doesn't simply say, I fought a fight. He says what? I fought the good fight. You know, you can fight all kinds of battles over the course of your life, but there's only one good fight. There's only one battle really worth fighting. And that is the battle for truth. And Paul fought the battle for truth. So he fought the good fight. He also says, I have finished the race. 
Um, and given the fact that Paul served and ministered over the course of decades, it's very clear here that he's not talking about a sprint. The Christian life is not something that is run on pure nerve or talent. It is a long, drawn-out race. It is more of a marathon than it is anything else. In his epistle to the Philippians, he elaborates on this. He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm straining, I'm running the race in the hope of what? Gaining the goal and winning the prize. And we ask the question, well, what is the goal? He said the goal was, at least in a marathon, to finish. Uh, I said oftentimes people who run marathons are not expecting that they're going to win. All they want to do is to be able to say they did it. They want to know that they've finished. And somebody came up to me not long after that lecture, just a couple days later, and they said, you know, I've run a marathon, and that's absolutely right. She said, I, I just wanted to finish. I, I didn't think for one minute that I was going to win. I'm going up against these superb runners, these expert athletes. She said, I never expected that I, all I wanted to do was finish. But you want to finish well, don't you? In the race of life, you don't want to be disqualified. You want to finish, and you want to finish well. And I pointed out to you that it's not how you start, it's how you finish in life that really matters. The Bible is filled with examples of people who started off very well indeed, but they finished poorly. King Saul in the Old Testament is a great example of that. But I also pointed out the Bible is also replete with examples of people who may have started off poorly, but because they finished well, they're numbered among the greats. Paul himself is probably the best example of that. He started off as bad as anybody could start off as a persecutor of the church, as an enemy of the cross. But let me tell you something, he finished well. How are you going to finish the race of life? That's, that's the great question, isn't it? That's what Paul says. He said, I finished. I finished the race. And I've gained the prize. What is the prize? We said the prize is Christ Jesus himself the bishop, the shepherd of our souls. St. Augustine put it very well. He said, oh Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Everything that you're really longing for, searching for in life is to be found in one place and in one person only, in Christ Jesus. Paul had found that. The final thing he says now is that he says, I have kept the faith. What does Paul mean by the faith? Well, earlier in this epistle, he refers to it as the good deposit. And he warns Timothy to guard the good deposit. The Greek word is philoso. It literally means to stand on the ramparts and make sure that no one gets close to stealing the treasure, the treasure of the faith. What is the faith? The holy wisdom of God versus worldly knowledge. So Paul makes it very clear. He's fought the good fight. He's finished the race. He's kept the faith. Now here's where we left off. Paul now begins to delineate his expectations. Having finished the race, having fought the fight, having kept the faith, now he said there were certain things that he was expecting. Verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to those who have loved or longed for his appearing. 
Uh, I pointed out to you a couple of weeks ago, just that quote, I said I'm going to take a page out of Brian McGreevy's book, and I'm going to quote from C.S. Lewis. This is the very end of one of his books, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, the last in the series. And I said that the children thought that they were going to be sent back into their own world, sent back into World War II England, sent back into what is sometimes referred to as the Shadowlands. But Aslan, the great Christ figure, the lion, reveals to them that that is not to be. That now they are able, because they have actually passed through death, he says, remember, there was actually a railway accident. You are, as they say in the Shadowlands, dead. But he says, now the great adventure begins. And I love the way that that particular book concludes. Their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, how many books are there in the Chronicles of Narnia? Seven. Seven books. So you've had all these adventures, seven volumes of adventures. And all of their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. What a marvelous picture of heaven. If you think that heaven is going to be this place where we all sit around in white robes on clouds plucking harps, <laughs> I've got news for you. You are in for a big awakening. That is not what heaven is going to be. First of all, I can tell you what heaven is going to be. It's going to be a great adventure. It's the real story in which each chapter gets better than the one before, and it's the story that goes on forever. And those of you who've looked forward to retirement, forget it. Because heaven is about work as well. But it is a work that is not drudgery. It is sheer pleasure. And that's what Paul is looking forward to, this great adventure. But not just an adventure. He says, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Crown of righteousness. What does Paul mean by that, the crown of righteousness? Well, I think part of what Paul means is that it is the fulfillment of everything that he's longed for. It is the manifestation of true righteousness. You see, Paul had been preaching the gospel of justification that you and I were not in a right relationship with God. This is the message that he proclaimed through the Jews, but also throughout the Gentile world, that you and I do not have a right relationship with God, that the relationship that we once had, that mankind enjoyed in Eden, was severed by man's rebellion. And we need to be brought into a right relationship with God. Uh, the word justified, I, I pointed out to you before, if you want to understand what that theological term justified means, just those of you who've done word processing, just go to the top when you've typed a whole page of text in, go to the top, you blacken in the whole page, and you hit the justify button, and what happens? The margins go flush, don't they? Everything lines up. That's what it means to be justified. And that's what Paul was preaching, a message of justification by grace through faith. It was the message that you and I can become lined up with God. Now, when Paul preached this message of justification, it was a legal proclamation. People were being declared righteous, not on the basis of anything that they had done, but on the basis of what Christ had done. It wasn't on the basis of good works. Paul says that is impossible. Even our best works are but filthy rags in the sight of the Lord. 
Our only hope of being lined up with God is what? Through the merits of Jesus Christ and through faith in Him. His righteousness is imputed to us. It is a declared righteousness. God declares us righteous, but that doesn't make us righteous. Now let me show you what I mean by that. Let's say, and I think I've used this illustration before, but let's say that a prince decides to marry a commoner. In fact, that's happening in England, isn't it? <laughs> prince Harry's getting ready to marry a commoner. Now, she's not a princess. Now, we don't know really the backstory here. Everybody says the royal family's thrilled about the fact that he's marrying an American. Most of the time when the Brits marry Americans, the royal family marries Americans, it doesn't work out well, generally speaking. <laughs> Um, story of Edward VIII. But at any rate, he's marrying this American. Now, let's just say, and I don't know anything about this young woman, but let's say that she is, they're not happy with her. Maybe she doesn't know how to act like a royal. Maybe she's got a sullied reputation. She's been in Hollywood. Who knows? But the minute that she enters that church as Miss Markle, that's who she is, but the minute she comes out, she is what? She's a royal. She's a princess, in a sense. Now, that doesn't mean that she necessarily automatically acts like one. But by virtue of the ceremony that she's gone through, she is declared to be something. Now, hopefully, over the course of time, she will become what she has been declared to be. Well, Paul knows that you and I are declared righteous. When God looks at us, instead of seeing us and our brokenness, what does he see? He sees the person of his son, Jesus Christ, whose image has been implanted upon our hearts. But does that necessarily mean that we are righteous people? Martin Luther had a wonderful expression, simo ustus et peccator. It means at the same time sinners and yet justified. How many of you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? How many of you stopped sinning the minute that you invited him into your heart? <laughs> you've been declared righteous, but you've not been made righteous. That is the process of sanctification, and it is just that. It is a process. It is a lifelong process of God transforming us into the very people that he's declared us to be. And what Paul is saying is that on that last great day, he's going to see it in all its fullness. He's going to be made perfect. Not just declared righteous, but made perfect righteous. There's a wonderful prayer in the Book of Common Prayer. We use it at funerals, which I think is very appropriate, but it's on page 488. And it says this, Into thy hands, O Lord, we commend thy servant Martha. Our dear sister is into the hands of a faithful creator and most merciful Savior beseeching thee that she may be precious in thy sight. Wash her, we pray thee, in the blood of that immaculate lamb that was slain to take away the sins of the world, that whatsoever defilements she may have contracted in the midst of this earthly life, being purged and done away, she may be presented pure and without spot before thee through the merits of Jesus Christ, thine only Son, our Lord. I think that's a wonderful prayer. That whatsoever defilements we may have contracted in the midst of this earthly life that still cling to us, having been purged and done away, we may be presented before God pure and blameless. 
without spot, without defilement, like Jesus Christ himself. How wonderful. What a wonderful picture. And that's what Paul is looking forward to. That's what he's talking about. He'd been declared righteous. Now he's looking forward to being made righteous. But I don't think it's just that. I don't think it's just that. I think Paul uses the expression crown of righteousness. He doesn't simply say, going to be made righteous or I'm, I'm looking forward to the gift of righteousness. He uses the term crown of righteousness. And I think that's very important as well because for him a crown was an award. Not on the basis of what he had done, but having been made righteous, he then began to live out that righteousness. Uh, the, the scripture says, put your salvation to work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't mean for your salvation, but once you've been given that gift, put the gift to work. To whom much has been given what? Much is required. If you inherit a vast fortune and you're a Christian, what should you do with that fortune? Hoard it? Lock it away? No, you should put it to work. And that's exactly what Paul says. Put your salvation to work. And he had. Because of that, he was looking forward to glory. Glory, glory, majesty, magnificence, and award. In 1 Corinthians, he writes, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. What was Paul expecting when he received his crown? I think a number of things. First of all, he was expecting vindication. I've said to you before, on the day of judgment, we all get judged. Don't think that because you're a Christian, you pass from judgment. We all get judged. We say it every Sunday. And he will come again to judge the what? The quick and the dead, or the living and the dead. It doesn't say the unrighteous. We all get judged. Now, we think about judgment, and that's a very negative thought. The negative connotations associated with that word. But I want you to understand, judgment is only a bad thing if the judgment is against you. If you stand before the judge accused and the gavel falls and you are declared innocent, that is not condemnation, that's what? It's vindication. Paul had suffered so much for the cause of Christ. Many people have accused him of all kinds of things. Many people thought that he was absolutely mad. In fact, that's what one of the Roman governors said to him at Caesarea Maritima. They said, for all of your learning, you have gone mad, Paul. Sometimes the world looks at Christians and they think we're absolutely crazy. We're mad. Nobody believes that sort of stuff anymore. Paul was looking forward to that day when the gavel would fall and there would be vindication. Not just vindication, but recognition. Well done, good and faithful servant. This past week, I wasn't here on Thursday, I've been up and down the East Coast, and to put everybody's heart at ease, I didn't get a single speeding ticket the whole time. I know that's been the conversation around town that I, I didn't get one. But I did. I traveled the whole way up um, last Saturday to Pennsylvania, dropped the boys off at college, turned around and came back. And then I was here for two days, then jumped in the car and drove to Florida to preach a friend's institution as a rector. One of my a young assistant that I had at St. Helena's was called to be the rector of a church in Jacksonville. And I went down there and I preached. 
And it was a great pleasure to be able to preach there um, to him as he was beginning this new ministry. And one of the things that I said to him, and I say to you, and I'll say it over and over again, I said to him, Matt, don't worry about being successful. Now his bishop was sitting there. His church treasurer was sitting out there. And I said, now, I know that your bishop wants you to grow this church. And I know that the church treasurer wants to see an increase in pledges. And I said, I pray that all of those things happen. And I said, but that's not your job. Your job is not to be successful. Your job is to be faithful. Now, that's a hard message for many people to hear because we live in a world of profit and loss. Everybody's merits, their worthiness is oftentimes judged on the basis of whether or not they've been successful in the eyes of the world. But Paul was not concerned with success. He was concerned with faithfulness. He poured himself out. He preached the word like water, and he trusted that God the Holy Spirit would turn it into wine. And because he had been faithful, he was expecting to hear those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus said the same thing in one of his parables. You have been faithful with a little. You will be given much. And Paul expected that. And the final thing that Paul expected was a welcome, a community, a family. Jesus said that if we have to give up our mothers or our fathers, our brothers or our sisters or our children, he said we will be given that much and more in his heavenly kingdom. I think Paul was expecting all of those things. And so there was a part of him that felt that he could lay down his sword and allow Timothy to pick it up. Which brings us to where we are today, these final verses, this section. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. I'm going to try to move through this quickly because I do want to finish out 2 Timothy today, if at all possible. Paul says, come and visit me. And he says, come before winter. As I said when I started, these are some of the most moving words in all of Scripture. And I think they're moving for a number of reasons. One is because oftentimes when we picture the Apostle Paul in our mind's eye, we see him depicted in artwork, whether it's in statuary and stained glass windows, he looks like that. This sort of giant of a figure, this courageous man, this great man who went out and feared nothing and dared all for the sake of Jesus Christ. We must never forget, however, that Paul was a human being just like the rest of us, and he struggled with the same things that you and I struggle with. I don't know how many of you have actually seen the movie, The Darkest Hour. Anybody seen that movie? I think what's so powerful about that movie is that you are looking at it through Churchill's eyes as he saw the events unfold there in 1940. You know, sometimes we look back with the advantage of hindsight. We know how the story ends, don't we? And we just think that Churchill was just courageous. It was always V for victory the whole way through. But the powerful thing about that particular movie is that you see him filled with fear, anxiety, self-doubt with everybody around him against him. What made him a hero? It wasn't that he didn't have doubts. He had all kinds of doubts. Did he have fears? Yes, he had fears that he was going to be wrong. 
It's been said that the only thing that makes, the only difference between a hero and a coward is that the hero stayed five minutes longer. <laughs> That's how we picture Paul, this great hero, never had doubts, never had fears, always had his eyes set on the prize. But that's not the picture we get here in 2 Timothy. We get the picture of an old man locked away in a prison, fearful and anxious and lonely. He's lonely, why? Well, he's lonely because he's been deserted by some of his friends. We're told that Demas had deserted him. He was also bereft of companions. Crescens, we're told, had gone on to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatian, and we're told that Luke alone was present with him. He was lonely, and I'll tell you, loneliness is probably the worst feeling in the world. To be separated, to be completely isolated. Now, I know that there are times when we want to be alone. One of the worst punishments that you can afflict upon anybody is solitary confinement. We were not created for that. We were created to be in fellowship. Paul feels alone. His best friends, his support group have left. He's anxious. He's not anxious about dying. He makes that very clear in his epistle to the Philippians. He said, I long to go to be with Christ, which is far better. But he is anxious about the future of the church and the gospel. We said when we started this epistle, there were all kinds of new religions appearing on the scene competing with the gospel. There were all kinds of false Christs, false prophets that were appearing. The empire was beginning to systematically purge Christians from the scene. Paul was very anxious about the future of the gospel. He was handing on the ministry to somebody who was not courageous, who was not strong, who was not outgoing. He was passing it on to this young man, Timothy, who was frail, sickly, and young, who he has to constantly remind to flee youthful passions, whatever that may be. He's anxious. And that anxiety is borne out in his call. He says, come to me. Come to me, Timothy. I'm all alone here. I don't know what the future holds. Come. Three times he makes the appeal. In verse 9 he says, come soon. Do your best to come to me soon. Later on he says, and when you come, bring the cloak cloak that I left behind. It's cold here in this terrible cell, 20 meters or 20 feet in diameter rather. Bring the cloak, bring the books, and especially, he says, bring the parchments. <laughs> I have nothing to read, nothing to do, nothing but to think about the future. Finally, in verse 21, he says, come before winter. Why does Paul say to Timothy, come before winter? Well, he wants his coat. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> there are a couple of other reasons why. First of all, he knows that Timothy is in far-off Ephesus, way across the Aegean and the Adriatic Seas. If Timothy doesn't come before winter, no ships will be sailing. In the ancient world, it was very precarious. There were only a few months out of the year, a small window of time in which you could travel by sea. If he missed that window, if Timothy didn't leave now, if he missed that opportunity, he would have to travel the much longer and even more dangerous land route. And he still would have had to cross several bodies of water in order to get there. So he knew that there was a small window of time. 
The other thing is this. Paul had a premonition. A premonition that his death was imminent. He says that. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure has come. He knows that if Timothy doesn't come before winter, chances are Paul won't be there when he arrives in the spring. I had another illustration up there. Um, I won't share it right now. It's too long. I'll just share one from my own life. Some years ago, my grandmother, 92, was in a nursing home. And I had a very close relationship with my grandmother. She was a wonderful lady. And um, I went to visit her. She was in Pennsylvania. I was in South Carolina. I was going to England. I was taking um, a group from St. Helena's to England, about 55 people. We were going to walk in the footsteps of the great English saints. And, uh, but I had to fly to New York, and I decided to fly through Pennsylvania, through Pittsburgh first, visit my grandmother, and then go on up to JFK. And I went and I spent a wonderful day with her, and um, it was a warm day, unseasonably warm in the spring at that time in Pennsylvania. And she was in a wheelchair, and she said, wheel me outside. So we wheeled her outside. The flowers were just beginning to bloom and so forth. And we just had a wonderful day together. Her body was failing, but her mind was sharp as a tack to the very end. But she seemed pretty, you know, for, the, for 92, she seemed pretty robust. But when the day came to the end, I had to take her back to her room, had her meal with her, and then I said, well, Grant, I've got to go, because I've got to get in the car and make it to the airport in time to catch my plane. And she said this to me. She said, wheel me to the door. And I said, why? She couldn't wheel herself. Her arms were too weak. She said, wheel me to the door. And I said, why? And she said, I want to see you walk down the hall. And I said, no. <laughs> I said, you're not going to watch me walk down the hall. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll be back in two weeks. And I said, I'll come back. And I'll see you in two weeks. And she said, oh, just, just wheel me to the door. I just want to walk, she walked down the hall. And I said, no, Grant, I'm not going to do that. You stay here, and I'll see you in two weeks. And a week later, when I was in England, I got the telephone call that she had died in her sleep. She knew. She knew the time was coming, you see. She had a premonition of this. Paul had a premonition of this. He knew and who's pleading with young Timothy, come, come to me. Back in the early part of the 20th century, there was a great preacher in Pittsburgh, Dr. Clarence McCartney. He pastored the First Presbyterian Church there, magnificent church. And uh, he preached a sermon, and the sermon was based upon this text, come and come before winter. And Dr. McCartney um, preached that sermon, and it was so popular, it, it struck such a chord in the hearts of his people that they asked him to preach it every year. And for 40 years, on an annual basis, he preached this one sermon. It is the most published sermon of the 20th century in terms of written form, titled Come Before Winter. And he's elaborating on this theme that there are certain things that we cannot put off that there are certain opportunities that present themselves in our life. And we need to seize them. Timothy needed to seize that opportunity. Every time that jailer put the key in the lock, whether it was to give a meal or to pass a message, 
What do you think Paul was thinking? It's Timothy. Timothy came, and he came before winter. He didn't put it off. Now, we don't know whether Timothy did come before winter or not. We may never know until we get to heaven and find out. That's when I want to ask Timothy, did you come before winter? <laughs> and I expect Paul to yell out, yeah, he came, and he brought the cloak. <laughs> but we don't know. But Dr. McCartney said there are many voices that are telling us to come before winter telling us that today is the day of decision. Now is the time to act. Do not put off until tomorrow what you can do today. He made three points in that sermon. He said, now is the day of reformation. For many of us, he said, there are things in our life that we know are not right. There are things that we should be doing that we are not doing. There are things that we should be letting go of that we have not let go of. And he said, now is the day of reformation. We have a tendency to say, well, I'll get to that later. He said, but sometimes never is what happens. When he was in Pittsburgh, he said he used to love to go down to the steelworks and see them pouring out the molten steel and the iron. He said, one thing struck me about that. He said, when steel is hot, it's malleable. You can mold it. You can shape it. But once it turns cold, it cannot be changed again becomes hardened and brittle. He said there are times in our life when the Holy Spirit is working on our hearts, on our minds, and we know it's God the Holy Spirit, and He's prompting us to do something, and now is the time, now is the moment of decision. And He said, if you let that moment go, if you let the Holy Spirit depart, and that warm feeling begins to cool, He said it will never be easy to change again. Now, he says, is the day of reformation. Make the decision to come, come before winter. He made the second point, and he said, now is the day to make amends. The worst words in the English language, in my opinion, are these, what if. I have to admit, I had a great relationship with my wife, but I did have to ask the question, or my grandmother, I did have to ask the question when I got that message from my, my uncle that she had died. I thought to myself, what if I had just wheeled her to the door that last time? What, what if? It was a small request. What if? Dr. McCartney said there are many relationships that have those words hanging over them. What if? He said now is the day to make amends. If there's somebody in your life, in your relationships that you are just not right with, now is the time, not tomorrow. We tend to think, well, I'll get to it tomorrow. What makes us think that it's going to be easier tomorrow? And above all, he says, now is the time to come to Christ. The book of Hebrews says, today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians saying, now, today, if you will hearken to my voice. Why do we need to come to Christ today? So many young people say, well, I'll get serious about my religion. I'll get serious about the church, but right now I'm having too much fun. Why do we need to make that decision today? Why do we need, in a sense, to come to Christ before winter? Two reasons. One is the uncertainty of human life. We just don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And the second thing is this, and I've already elaborated on it some, to some degree. It's only going to be harder tomorrow. 
Think about your relationships. If you get angry with somebody and you normally have a conversation with them on a daily basis and you don't talk to them for a week, is it easier to pick up the telephone and call them again? And so you wait a month. Is it easier now to call them? Or you wait a year or five years and then you think, well, I'll pick up the telephone. But then you're fearful of what? Are they going to take the call? Same thing is true when it comes to our lives. We think, oh, well, I'll come to Christ when it's convenient. Well, let me ask you a question. What, you, what will you be doing between now and that moment when it's convenient for you? Probably living your own life. Probably doing your own things. Probably sinning and following the ways of the world. And what makes you think that it will ever be easier then, after years of wandering away from Christ, to come back? Paul's words to Timothy are words to us. If you've never done it, Jesus says, come. Come today. He said, come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He says, come unto me. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is light. He says, come and find rest for your souls. But come before winter. Come before winter. Moving words, powerful words, not just for Timothy, but for us as well. May God grant that we do not put off until tomorrow what needs to be done today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this great epistle. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you that he was not a, a perfect man. He was a broken, fallen sinner. He was courageous, but he was not courageous of his own might, but by the might of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for these words, a somewhat somber message for us to end on, but an important message for us, Lord. We are a people who procrastinate, especially when it comes to the most important things in life. But Lord, grant that when we come to the end of our days, like Paul, we can say we have fought the good fight, we have finished the race, we have kept the faith. God grant, Lord, that we can look back over our lives with no regrets, with a confidence that like him, having been faithful to the end, we can receive that crown of righteousness which you have prepared for all who long for your appearing. Grant this, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.